that's giving you a place to start. It's not giving you the answer for how this patient is going to resuscitate. Welcome back to PedScript. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric ICU fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a critical care fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you again remind us what we do here at PedScript Podcast? Absolutely. PedScript is a collaborative educational podcast. We are interviewing as many PICU attendings as we can find about their favorite bedside teaching points, and we're having a great time. Zach, who are we talking with today? Today, we're excited to have Dr. Samuel Mandel with us. So Dr. Mandel is not a pediatric intensivist. He is an associate professor in the Department of Surgery at UT Southwestern, where he specializes in trauma surgery, surgical critical care, and the comprehensive care of the burn-injured patient. Dr. Mandel serves as the burn section chief and director of the Parkland Regional Burn Center here in Dallas, Texas. Yes, and that is Parkland Regional Burn Center, like the Parkland formula. In this episode, we're going to be talking about airway, triage, best practice guidelines to starting fluids. Let's get right to the interview. Sounds great. Let's go. Dr. Mandel, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and and what you do, what your role in this burn center is? Certainly. So I am a burn surgeon and a trauma surgeon and a critical care surgeon. And I I list all three of those things because I like to combine them in what I do. You know, my background in terms of training is I did both a trauma critical care fellowship and a burn fellowship. And my current role is as medical director of the burn center at Parkland Health and Hospital System. And so I primarily oversee all of the burn care within that burn center, as well as continuing practice in trauma surgery and surgical critical care. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. You're definitely the person to talk to about pediatric burn. Let's get right into our case. So our patient is a six-year-old male who's rescued from a house fire and brought to the emergency department by ambulance. Upon arrival, he was being supported with a non-rebreathing face mask. On your exam, you see a large burn across his face and his torso and upper extremities. There's also significant burn on the side of his face overlying his cheeks and extending to his neck. So to jump into our first question, you know, Sam, how common are pediatric burn injuries and that require critical care? Why is this an important topic for us to discuss today? Yeah, so I think, you know, pediatric burn injuries are relatively common, although I would say that the vast majority of them are not going to require critical care. So this particular injury would actually be more of an unusual injury for, for the pediatric population. The most common burn injury in kids by far is scald injuries. And those tend to, to happen in younger kids up to about age 10. Now, in the adult population, flame burns are by far more common. And we see that transition, as you kind of might expect, right around the teen years. Things transition from more of a scald burn pattern to flame or fire injuries becoming the more common burn injuries. The reason that this is important is that burn injuries that do require critical care are important to recognize might not be as obvious as you might think in certain circumstances. And starting that resuscitative care early can really make a difference in terms of having a patient that resuscitates smoothly through their acute burn versus has a rockier course or a more challenging resuscitation. Mm. So identifying these high-risk patients that we can really help and triaging them appropriately early on. Yeah, and really and really getting the, the ball rolling in terms of resuscitation, right? So 
starting that as early as possible, even pre-hospitally, all the way through getting the patient to a, a burn center. Nice. In addition to sort of the standard ATLS procedures, how do you change your initial evaluation when it's a burn patient? What what should we emphasize? What should we never miss? Yeah. So I think you kind of hit the nail right on the head there with ATLS. I think it's really important. And I like that you highlighted that burn patients are trauma patients too. And so it is important to make sure that you're doing your A, B, C, D, and E evaluation, just like you would for ATLS. I think what's a little bit different is sometimes the mechanical trauma aspects of it can be ruled out just by history. But I think here's a, here's a key, key way to think about this in terms of the case that you've presented here. So let's say that this child was found outside on the lawn of a two-story burning house, awake, interactive, and talking to rescuers. Contrast that with a child that's found unresponsive on the front lawn of a two-story house, right? We don't know whether that child had to jump out of a second-story window, fell out of a second-story window, right? And there are some trauma elements to this that we have to think about. So really important to, to keep that in mind. Do your ABCD evaluations and take a good history regarding the possible aspects of trauma. I think for burns, you know, everybody knows, I think, from the early medical training that burns need a lot of fluid. But I think it's important to think just about how that should be administered. So where burns does differ from mechanical trauma is what we're doing or what our goals of resuscitation are. You know, if you think about the vascular system, let's say, as a bucket, right? Trauma patients, we have a hole in the bucket. We want to plug the hole, fill the bucket back up. Burn patients, what we're doing is we're turning that bucket basically into a strainer or a colander, right? Fluid's leaking everywhere out of these patients. And it takes a while for that to start up, but we have to be replacing the fluid at that same rate that it's leaking out. The challenge here is we don't really know what that is. So if we just start bolusing patients right away, we're going to give them lots of extra fluid. So we want to start early, but be smart about it. And the way that you can do that is by using some standard volumes, say in the field or the emergency department, when that child hits the door, start your resuscitation off at about 125 milliliters per hour of LR for a young child, you know, less than six years old. For an older kid, six to 14, start at 250 an hour. Right off the bat, no math involved. You've got your resuscitation going. Now you can do your evaluation for trauma, your ABCDEs, and your resuscitation's already underway. Now we can go back later and start thinking about tailoring that resuscitation. I think that's really helpful to have those round numbers for us to give us a starting point for our fluid resuscitation. And we'll definitely come back to that later in the conversation. The other thing that comes up, I, I think, a lot, especially in the younger patient population, is IV access to start your fluid resuscitation. You know, fluid resuscitation, like most, can be done through IOs as well as IVs. You know, so as time starts slipping away trying to get that IV access, don't forget that IO is a great way to get that underway and gives you time after your resuscitation has started. Just like the PALS algorithm, like we would take care of any other patient in shock. Exactly. Starting it off, it's exactly like that. I think where the difference comes in, remember, is that we're trying to prevent patients from going into hypovolemic shock and burn resuscitation. We kind of want them riding that line right, right around class one shock, right? If the patient goes into shock, then we've missed the boat. It's interesting because that's the thing is that every other patient in the emergency room comes in dry, gets a bolus. And this, if it's a transport call, if you're in the ED, you can immediately recommend just a higher than maintenance fluid rate, the 125, the 250, and, and keep things safe. 
Yeah, exactly. Although you make a great point, right? Which is, is it ever appropriate to bolus a burn patient right off the bat? And the answer is yes, right? It's when we've missed that initial resuscitation boat. Now the patient's hypotensive. Now they're in shock. So we actually do need to potentially provide some fluid boluses to bring that volume back up. But don't forget that that inflammatory process is still going on. So we need to balance our resuscitation rate in the background with the bolus. So if we're bolusing, we need to be going up on our background resuscitation rate because we've let the patient get too dry. I appreciate that distinction you made about trying to prevent the patient being in shock. I think that's really important for, for us to remember. Thinking about ABCs, airway considerations, I know we're always worried about a possible inhalation injury in these patients and the need to take the airway sooner rather than later. You're practically speaking, are there any common or worrisome risk factors that would make you a bit more suspicious of an inhalation injury? Yeah, so I think probably there are a few practical things to look for. So number one, and first and foremost, respiratory distress is respiratory distress, whether it comes from asthma or is coming from a burn. If you see a child that is struggling to breathe, right, has lots of strider, looks like they're in respiratory distress, that kid needs to get intubated, really no question about it. Where the challenge comes in is some of these softer things or findings that, that might indicate the need for resuscitation. So clinical judgment is really important here. I think if you see deep burns on the face, really full thickness burns on the face, that should make you more worried that this child might have an inhalation injury. If you see burns inside the mouth, that should make you worried. Or in a young child, if you have a really significant total body surface area and you know that this kid is gonna be getting massive resuscitation, I start to think about intubating earlier in that situation. But some of the common things that get talked about a lot, so let's say soot in the airway or soot around the mouth. You know, almost all of the patients who have inhalation injury get soot in their mouth, right? It's 100% sensitive. But the specificity of it is really quite poor. It's only about 30%, right? So if we just intubated everybody who had a little bit of soot in their mouth, you know, you'd have 70% of patients who didn't need to be intubated getting, uh, getting an airway. So it is important to think, do I really have full thickness burns on the face? Are there burns in the mouth? Do I see signs of respiratory distress? Those are the things that really drive me to say, yes, I need to get this airway taken early. I think it's also important to remember that a lot of the swelling that we worry about comes with our resuscitation. So if we're seeing this child early on in a place where we can do really good monitoring in the ICU setting, right? we have time to sort of make some decisions and really do a good evaluation in terms of the need for an airway. Absolutely. But maybe on the distinction, if you were about to have to transport a patient several hours, maybe your threshold falls somewhat to get the airway. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that's, that is certainly a time where you can consult with a burn center or talk to a burn specialist if you have any questions. But, you know, again, what really drives me to do it are signs and symptoms of respiratory distress. And I would never tell somebody who thinks that they have somebody in respiratory distress that they should not secure the airway. Oh, that makes sense. When we think about inhalation injury, we could have particle injury, thermal injury, and then there's the absorption of toxic substances. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on how you recommend transport or initial resuscitation when it comes to trusting the pulse ox, what we should be using for our oxygen delivery, things like that? Yeah. So, so I think of airway injury in three groups, above the glottis, 
right? That's upper airway injury. That's what we were really just talking about, right? The worry about, it, about securing the airway because of swelling. Below the glottis, right? So that's, that's particle injury to the lungs mostly or chemical irritants to the lungs. That's gonna, we're gonna see that usually about 24 hours later, um, you know, as that starts to develop. And then the third that you mentioned, which is systemic poisoning. And the two big ones that we think of, carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide. So we'll take carbon monoxide first. <laughs> so carbon monoxide has about 200 times the affinity for hemoglobin than oxygen does at 21% oxygen and sea level. So the way that we tend to treat that is we put everybody who's involved in a fire like this on 100% oxygen. What you're going to do there is you're going to cut that half-life down to about 40 minutes and help them clear that carbon monoxide much faster. And practically speaking, is that just a non-rebreather face mask? Practically speaking, just a non-rebreather face mask is adequate for that. And that's going to help you clear any carbon monoxide that has built up from inhalation. So that's sort of the, the mainstay or the primary treatment for carbon monoxide. In terms of trusting your, your pulse oximeter, it is true that carbon monoxide bound hemoglobin will appear red. And so that that can mess with pulse oximetry. Although there are much more modern pulse oximeters that can detect multiple wavelengths of red light, and they can actually detect carboxyhemoglobin compared with oxyhemoglobin, though those are really not in widespread use. Most of the time you're going to see regular pulse oximeters, and those can be confused by high levels of carboxyhemoglobin. But the good news is we do have some readily available tools at our disposal to help us sort out whether that's what they're seeing. And you know what it goes back to is good old-fashioned physical exam. If you've got a child who is awake or alert, crying, interacting with you appropriately, you know that, there are, that they're perfusing their brain well. So you can put them on 100% oxygen. You know that you're treating potential carboxyhemoglobin during transport. And then you can actually measure that level when they get to the hospital. In terms of hydrogen cyanide poisoning, this is a hard one epidemiologically. We don't really know how widespread this is because most of the studies that have looked at the epidemiology of it really have looked at people who don't survive. And so it's hard to know, wow. you know how widespread this is in people who actually survive and make it to the hospital. The treatment that we use these days for it is hydroxycobalamin. The idea is that it chelates cyanide turns into cyanocobalamin, which is vitamin B12, and then you pee out a whole lot of vitamin B12. The dose for pediatrics is seven milligrams per kilo, but it does come in five gram vials because that's an adult dose. So something to, to look at in the pediatric population where it has been used. Who should get that? I really reserve the treatment with that for kids who are unresponsive or have altered mental status or kids who had CPR or a history of cardiac arrest in the fire. Outside of that, I really don't use it routinely just because you were near a fire or in a, in a closed space fire. I don't think mm -hmm. that's enough. Remember, cyanide is a highly toxic substance. It basically shuts down cellular respiration. And so to treat it empirically is important, but you should be seeing signs and symptoms like altered mental status, true hypoxemia, elevated lactate before you need to give it. Oh, so really the answer to the question, why did this child arrest or why are they not waking up? Exactly. Exactly. 
I think it's really helpful hearing how you use your physical exam to kind of risk stratify these patients. So, you know, the patient who's alert and interactive talking with you, they're probably not terribly poisoned. You know, go ahead and empirically treat them for any kind of carbon monoxide exposure with 100% oxygen and then reserve your cyanide treatment for those more critically ill patients. Is there clinically ever any reason, say you have one of these more severe cases, is there ever any reason to, you know, evaluate them for cyanide toxicity to send off a level, so to speak, if that's even what, what's done? Generally speaking, no. So most places can't test for cyanide. It's a send out. Uh, and even the ones that do, it takes about two hours for it to come back. So if you really do suspect that this person might have an elevated level of cyanide, you should treat it empirically. And the levels is not going to be useful in terms of your clinical treatment algorithm. I feel like we're taught that maybe cyanide prevents you from utilizing oxygen. So maybe the pulse ox might be high and normal. Is that clinically what you see or probably not? Well, it's hard. Again, remember, it's hard to know because we don't really have a great idea about who truly has this. But the pulse ox, right, the pulse ox is measuring oxygen saturated hemoglobin. That's interfered with a little bit by carbon monoxide. Hydrogen cyanide is working in the mitochondria on the electron transport chain. So it doesn't actually interfere with your cells binding oxygen to hemoglobin. You just can't use it in the cell. Yeah. Anything else to add about carbon monoxide and cyanide before we move along? No, I think those are the, I think those are the main things, except I think it's sometimes important to remember because, you know, in pediatric burns, there's a, there's a lot of emotion. These can be big injuries. It's upsetting to see kids who are hurt in this much pain. And so we can sort of get into this like, oh my God, it's a large bird mode. Just remember that if it's a big scald, they don't have these things, right? Scald, mm. burns, scald burns don't in general create carbon monoxide, right? They're not going to have hydrogen cyanide. So really remember what your mechanism is when you're, when you're seeing these patients. And that makes plenty of sense. Carbon needs to combust for those chemicals to come out. And yeah, this is not something that we thought of asking earlier, but hyperbaric chambers, is that something that's fallen out of favor or what is the role that you see? Uh, Not fallen. I I don't think it's fair to say it's fallen out of favor. I think we don't use it a lot in acute burns. One, because they have the concomitant burn injury and the resuscitation. And two is it's not always available in places that have burn care. You know, I think where you do see it used is in what I would call pure carbon monoxide injury. So if you have somebody who is either, say, trapped in a closed space with an engine or a heater, those sorts of things, and those patients have elevated carboxyhemoglobin levels, you know, they may benefit in terms of some of the long-term neurologic outcomes from hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I would put it more in that category. Somebody who has a big burn and other injuries is going to have more to deal with in terms of resuscitation. So it's not used commonly there. So let's come back to that cardiovascular part of the resuscitation, the fluid resuscitation part of a, a burn injury. Will you remind us why do patients, especially pediatric patients, have such a high fluid requirement, those that are burned, compared to our other sick patients? Yeah, so it really comes down to the inflammatory response to the injury. So burn patients have a very, very large inflammatory response. And once it gets up to about really 15% for young children... for older children and adults, that inflammatory response becomes systemic and somewhat overwhelming. And so what is going to happen as inflammatory mediators are released is you have increased capillary leak, 
you start to lose fluid, you have a reduction in terms of the integrity of the capillary membrane. So after a few hours, you will actually start to get loss of plasma proteins into the interstitium too. So you lose your oncotic gradient as well as, as some of your osmotic gradient. And then there is also a reduction in cardiac output early on in the acute phase of burns. So you have a lot of systemic things that are contributing to the slow generation or the slow progression to hypovolemic shock, as well as some loss of the ability to compensate for it in terms of cardiac contractility. And there might even be some local factors around the wound that might make them more susceptible to hyperperfusion, right? We've been taught about like the zone of stasis uh, where there's issues. Uh, yes. yeah. 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 So so those are really, I would separate the two. So when you're talking about the zone of stasis, you're talking about sort of a local skin phenomenon, right? So as the burn gets deeper and you get more local, more local inflammation, you get some vasoconstriction in the wound. And so with that loss of blood flow, you can have a deepening of the injury and a more severe injury. It's a little bit separate from what's happening systemically. So you can have both the zone of stasis that we would talk about in a cutaneous wound, but also systemically have this capillary leak and loss of oncotic gradient. In fact, that swelling, right, that capillary leak can can impact things like the zone of stasis or skin perfusion because as you lose fluid into the interstitium and you swell, that's going to increase the pressure on those capillaries in the skin and decrease perfusion to the skin as well. Hey, I'm Ciara Minova, a graduate student of psychology and neuroscience of mental health at King's College London, and I'm so excited to share with you my new podcast, which is called Behind the Stigma. Every other week, I will be mainly talking to the podcast clinical psychologists, clinicians, researchers, educators in the field, you name it, basically people that I find so inspiring and that will help us understand the latest research, concepts, but also complexities and controversies surrounding mental health. These are going to be some great discussions and a peek into the fascinating world of psychology, neuroscience, and psychiatry. So as we provide this fluid resuscitation, as a, both a consultant and the primary intensivist, how do you recommend we monitor the response to the resuscitation? Yeah, so the key for very modern burn resuscitation is still urine output. It is still what we go to in terms of our initial fluid resuscitation guide. And, you know, frankly, one of the reasons why that can work so well is that the kidneys see about 25% of our cardiac output. So they are pretty sensitive to, to changes in intravascular volume. So what we're looking for is we're looking for good urine output. What does that mean? In the pediatric population, especially young children, we're generally looking for one cc per kilo per hour. In adults, that changes to about half cc per kilo per hour. You'll see the range of 30 to 50 milliliters per hour for adults um, or older kids. I tend to shoot for right around 30. So that's, that's really what we're looking for. Now, there are other things that you can use to clue yourself into how your resuscitation is going. So for example, hematocrit, patients who are getting dry, burn patients who are not bleeding, if you're seeing their increase in their hematocrit or they're coming in with an unusually high hematocrit, something like say 55, 60, those patients are very likely dry in the acute phase. And so there are things like that, elevated lactates, 
that can clue you in on to how a resuscitation is going and can reassure you if somebody is not peeing early on that, yeah, this really is a volume issue, which it almost always is in that first 24-hour period, and you need to catch up a little bit on resuscitation. But the mainstay is still urine output. You know, previously you shared with us that the child is less than six years old or six or less, it would start around 125 mLs an hour. And maybe if they're above six, start at 250. Mm-hmm. Practically speaking, if you had someone on the phone telling you, I got this severely burned patient, the urine output is low below the parameters that you set for us previously, how would you recommend they increase their fluid rate bolus, increase just the rate? What, what, would you, what do you typically say? Yeah, so those numbers that I gave you, that 125 and that 250, you might say, well, where does that come from, right? We've always calculated fluids. Well, where that really comes from is that's a patient of kind of average weight for that age group with a 50% burn using the consensus formula. And that's going to give you right around that volume per hour. So that's a great place to start. The next question is, right, okay, what if they're not responding to that? Or now I'm going to do my fluid calculation using a resuscitation formula and I'm not getting the urine output I want. What do I do now? So there are some differing uh, approaches to this, but in general, right, if the the urine output's inadequate, you're going to go up on your fluid. Some people go up by 20%. Some people would say go up by 10%. The urine output is below your, your target rate. Early on in the resuscitation, in those first few hours, I tend to be a little bit more aggressive about getting people to a rate where their urine output is adequate. I'm going to tend to go up by about 20% in terms of my fluid rate. Boluses, I still reserve for patients who are hypotensive or who have shown signs of shock or hypoperfusion. And if I do it, remember, you've got to increase the rate also. Because if you're, if you're getting into shock, it's because your hourly rate's inadequate. So you have to both bolus and go up on the rate. Otherwise, you know, when an hour goes by, you might be right back in the same situation. And every time you're bolusing, right, we know we're giving some excess fluid that's going to leak out. And so we want to make sure we're as tailored as possible in terms of the overall volume that we're giving, especially in young children. Is this all crystalloid that you're giving or at what point do you start thinking about adding other types of fluid, albumin, FFP? Yeah, good, good question. Uh, so initially it is crystalloid. Most books and places will tell you that it's lactated ringers. You know, the reason for that is the electrolyte component is more similar to human plasma. Could you use plasmalite? Yes. You know, normal saline is not ideal because of the high levels of sodium and chloride. So you can get metabolic acidosis because we're giving these huge volumes of fluid. But if it's all you have, this comes up in the pre-hospital setting. If it's all you have, it's fine to use in the short term until you can switch over to, to LR. Albumin, where does that fit in? Many places will use albumin as a rescue strategy. If patients are getting up to about two times what their predicted fluid rate would be by a resuscitation formula, they'll add albumin in. That's what we do right around these six to eight hours. If somebody is on high levels of fluid, you know, twice what would be predicted, adding in albumin up to say a third of their resuscitation rate is done. Some centers use albumin earlier. The traditional argument against using it earlier in the resuscitation is that loss of oncotic gradient. And some people want to see that, you know, potentially resolve. And that's why you hear that six to eight hour mark. I think a newer area of interest in terms of resuscitation is the use of plasma for resuscitating burn patients. 
The idea behind this is that it helps in terms of stabilizing the endothelial glycocalyx and preventing endothelial damage. And so there are some centers that are using plasma right now, right out of the gate in terms of burn resuscitation. That's rare, and we don't have a lot of evidence for it right now. There is about to start going to be a multi-center randomized trial looking at exactly this question to try to answer whether using plasma helps resolve capillary leak faster and reduce lung injury in burn resuscitation. That's interesting. And just so that I'm sure that I'm clear, you wait six to eight hours before starting some albumin 5% so that the oncotic gradient has resolved, meaning that the blood vessels now have the integrity for the albumin not to leak into the extravascular space. So goes the theory, yes. Okay. Um, although you're going to see a pretty robust variation in there if you go to different burn centers. Mm-hmm. Um, different places will do it a little differently. Some centers also will will sort of do like mini boluses of albumin. Others will put it on as a as a basal rate in the background as part of the resuscitation formula, which is more what my practice is. You know, I'll add it in as a as a continuous rate. So. There's still, there's still a fair amount of variation in there, but I, I think what is more consistent now is that I would say the majority of centers are going to use colloid for patients who are on very high volumes of crystalloid in that acute resuscitation period. It sounds like this is a good basic science thing to know, but the safest thing for you to do as a as a frontline provider is to follow your institutional protocol so that people exactly. aren't confused, right? Yes. Maybe to circle back, so, you know, for these kids who are burned, we're always worried about them becoming hypoglycemic, especially the young ones. We also know that if you're putting someone on 250, 300 cc's an hour of D5 containing fluid, that's probably not ideal. How, how do you recommend we work through dextrose replacement for these kids? So the classic teaching in the, in the burn community has sort of been, you know, kids under 30 kilos, right? And the, and the theory has always been, based on liver glycogen stores and, you know, they're burning through their glycogen stores faster. So the way that that we tend to do that is adding in a maintenance rate on top of what we would calculate for their fluid resuscitation rate. And for that, I usually just use, you know, really what you would use as a, as a maintenance rate. So four to one roll, and I use D5 half normal with some potassium in it. Now, I think it's important to remember, right? All kids don't read the rule book. And so, yes, it is really important to think about this in younger children. But if you have a child, you know, who is, is you know, at 15 hours into this and they've got a blood glucose in 250s and you're trying to start them on an insulin drip, they don't need extra glucose. They're doing just fine, right? So, you know... Yeah, some of these things are really helpful in terms of of framing what we need to think about in terms of the resuscitation, but it's important to remember to treat the patient in front of you, right? That's just like with the resuscitation formulas. That's giving you a place to start. It's not giving you the answer for how this patient is going to resuscitate. It's telling you, I need to start here, and now I need to modify my resuscitation based on how the patient is responding. And glucose is the same thing. You got a young kid, you got to think about whether they need glucose supplementation. And if they don't, don't do it. You know, we believe very strongly in starting patients who have large burns on early enteral nutrition as well. Putting these folks on tube feeds kind of right out of the gate is important. 
And so once you have that source of glucose as well, you may not need extra endogenous glucose. So practically, maybe that 20 kilo patient would get 60 an hour of D5 containing fluids, and then whatever their burn would entail would be your other LR fluids. Exactly. And you don't titrate that dextrose containing fluid, right? That's just there for the dextrose. (laughs) Sounds great. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. It's also worth noting that the views expressed during this episode by me, Zach, and our guests are our own and do not reflect the official position of our institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to help support the production of Pedscrit, you can find us on Venmo and Patreon. We've also had some light merch made in the form of Pete's Crit laptop stickers. And if you include a mailing address with any contribution, we would be so excited to send you one. Thank you again for listening.